Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Dream Drive. Hey, folks, rent a cool, customized camper van to explore some of the beautiful areas of Japan a bit off the beaten track. Get back to nature, take a hike, go camping, discover rivers and lakes and remote temples and shrines, and even sleep right there. Dream Drive, your hotel on wheels. Hey everybody, thanks for stopping by. With this episode, you are in for a treat. An entertaining and stimulating conversation with a real forward-thinking evangelist for digital transformation in Japan, Mr. Evan Burkowski. Now, before you tune out because you just heard the two words digital transformation, just hold on. This is actually a fascinating topic which has become big news with the recent governmental creation of an agency just for this purpose, and Evan will share what steps he would implement if he were appointed the head of this new agency. And what's more entertaining than listening to Gaijin giving advice on how to improve Japan. In this case, however, Evan really knows his stuff. Articulate, humorous, and smart. Evan also talks about his early challenges and struggles in Japan, then the success of starting his own English school, and how this led to the establishment of Hokkaido's premier boutique marketing agency. Fast forward 20 years, we discuss influencer marketing, media engagement, and Evan even challenges me to explain why he should buy a Japanese branded knife from a 290-year-old German company. Yeah, it gets personal. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Evan Burkowski. I have a pet theory that Japan was a laggard in digital transformation, partly because of the culture or the history the underlying awareness of disruption right. that the country has grown up with over the past 3,000 odd years. There's always some disruption around the corner, whether it be earthquake or, or typhoon or internal strife or external strife. There's always some disruption coming. It usually happens without warning. Because of those disruptions, I think there's a prevalence uh, in looking at anything that is uncertainty avoiding, anything that will last for the long term. But digital, it's intangible, it's right. transient. It seems like the next tsunami could come and wipe away your server, and then you wouldn't have any of it left, right? So it, it seems like a risk. This uncertainty around, will digital actually be that valuable? Will it actually stick around? Right. And it wasn't until the large-scale adoption of uh, cloud servers and essentially having your data mirrored across multiple servers that one incident wouldn't take it all out, it's taken a few years to have that story out and readily available and readily understood. But now we're getting there. And also, opportunities in Japan are often seen from a cost perspective. Of course. And also a don't rock the boat perspective. This is a mature market. It's not a dog-eat-dog market at all. In fact, I was speaking with a customer quite recently and I asked what their sales revenue targets were for the next three years. And they said, well, in our gyokai or within our association, 
we have to be careful not to step on everybody else's toes. Yeah. So we'd like to have 5% growth, but that would rock the boat a bit too much. So we'll say 3%. I remember when I first came to Japan, I was working at a department store. I was representing a brand that we were buying directly from the US, so it was our brand. We weren't using wholesalers or anything, we were responsible. And I decided one day that, you know, we had some slow moving products. We should put them on sale. <laughs> yes. And I was, that idea was quickly shot down by my manager. And I said, well, why not? Because it would be unfair to all the other brands because only we were having the sale, but it's our brand. Didn't matter. We couldn't rock the boat. You don't want to aggressively compete, you want to harmoniously compete. So let's talk a little about digitalization. You are a self described evangelist. And you use that word, is that because your first name, Evan, is in the word evangelist? Of course. There you go. <laughs> self described evangelist for Japan's digitalization. Why the passion? Well, I'm passionate about it because it's a huge business opportunity. With an aging population, Japan desperately needs something to continue to stimulate the economy. We're doing pretty well right now. Japan has rode out the pandemic quite well because Japanese corporations had huge war chests of, of money that they had been sitting on sure. for these type of emergency uh, situations. But it's not going to be possible for Japan to retain that third largest GDP position without some innovation. And the, the time is, uh, is, is overripe to engage in some future forward thinking. We have seen an accelerator in the form of the pandemic, but I'm passionate about making sure that that continues and, and just sort of tipping things to the point where it sticks, where people really realize that not only is the digital transformation beneficial, not only does it have a positive business impact, but it has a positive societal impact as well. This is something that's going to help future-proof Japanese industry and provide a better quality of living to society at large. So it's an easy thing to, to hang one's hat on, as it were, because it is, it is so important, and I believe that it will have so many net positive benefits. Somewhere between solution and seduction. <laughs> I think that's the... Um, the sales pitch that, that every uh, modern tech company is going for. But a lot of people listening to this, they'll say, hey, Japan is very high tech in many areas, especially in manufacturing, mainly with tangible goods, not so much in digital. Why is that? Well, all of the core competencies come down to tangible items. What's the most famous Japanese software company in the world? I'll stop you there because it should be top of mind awareness, right? We should be easily able to say, here's the top one, here's the top three, here's the top 10 Japanese software companies that everybody in the world knows about. Uh, but that's not currently the case. Right. We're going to get there, but we won't call them software companies. We'll probably call them AI companies. I think that the term AI is probably going to replace the ubiquitous term IT. I've been called an IT specialist throughout my career, which is not actually what I do. But we're seeing advancements and an evolution where Japan's natural acceptance of automation and robotics 
is moving into acceptance of AI. Currently, if you look at the top, I think it's the top six out of 10 companies on the mother's market, they're all leveraging AI technology in some way, whether it's for automation or optical uh, character recognition, transcribing uh, Japanese uh, handwritten characters into text, or image recognition or natural language processing, all some form of artificial intelligence to move from the paper world into the digital world. All of the top companies are invested in that in some way. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll qualify that for any listeners who aren't familiar with the, with the uh, Tokyo market. So the Tokyo Mother's Market is the branch of the Tokyo Stock Exchange that specifically works with uh, early stage venture tech companies. Right. So uh, again, I believe today it's currently six out of the top 10 are leveraging some form of AI technology. So we'll see more and more adoption of this. I think we'll see Japanese AI become more and more famous around the world as there's this bridging of the physical world with the digital world and it becomes seamless. Okay. That's, cheers. Uh, well, cheers. Wow, you're down in that pretty quick. You must be thirsty. Well, I assumed this was the warm-up beer. This is true. I'll be <laughs> catching up. Congratulations, you have a new position. Thank you very much. Meltwater Japan specializes in media monitoring, social listening, engagement, and influencer marketing. That's a lot of internet jargon, yep. buzzwords to wade through. Basically, it means you offer software services to manage one's company or brand's reputation online. Is this close? Yeah, yeah, that's very close. I like to use a big net analogy. We get all of the data that's relevant to your company and then we filter it down into really quality data that's actually usable. And then we make it really easy for you to share that data, to either share it internally with other stakeholders, utilizing it for marketing campaigns, to better understand your company's perception in the market, or better understand maybe your audience, and then to uh, take action on it. What does this data mean? How should I be using it? You'd formulate strategies based on where the market was moving or what you thought consumers would be interested in. Maybe you were deciding which products and services you'd be launching next or maybe just deciding, you know, that day's advertising campaigns. How can you best communicate with the market? But with Meltwater, you can take all of that data and you can either set it up so that you're Digital getting automated. Data, yeah, absolutely. Of course, these days, all of the traditional news sources are digitally available. Plus, we have social media. So you're taking all of those sources and then you're distilling it down into what's relevant for the company and you're sharing it internally. So the old file folder full of newspaper clippings, you're, instead of sharing that internally, you're now sharing an email or automated real-time alerts about certain topics, or you're taking all of that data and putting it into a nice PowerPoint presentation and, and sharing it. Essentially, it gives you more power to take action on the data. So what people are saying about you digitally? Although it's not just what people are saying, it's what they're writing or what they're being interviewed about in podcasts like this, what they're saying on social media, what they're writing in YouTube comments and right. on Twitter, uh, what journalists are writing in articles. Basically, all of the potential data sources that you want to know when people are talking about your company or your competitor or some part of your audience, how do you convince a Japanese company, which might only have a basic website or basic e-commerce presence or social media presence, 
how would you convince them using your services? Well, you tell the narrative of what the actual business impact is. And of course, that was the thing that was missing in digital transformation. I don't think Japanese companies saw any need for digital transformation until very recently. If you look at it, there's a huge cost of moving from the legacy boxed software systems that most enterprises in Japan run on today to cloud systems and, and social media and moving away from the print and the broadcast media that they were familiar with. What's the actual business impact? It was unclear until the pandemic and the need for remote work became an accelerator. Yeah. Was Meltwater already in Japan or did you are you helping start them up here? Oh no, Meltwater has been in Japan for 13 years. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah, there are already uh, almost 800 customers in Japan. Whoa. It's quite an established brand. I would say that it's maybe not quite a household name yet, right. although I think amongst PR and communications directors, most have heard of us. Using tools to measure and monitor the full digital picture of your brand, the market, and competitors is relatively new. Nonetheless, many markets understand the need and embrace this already. Is Japan one of them? Now is the tipping point, and so it's really interesting timing. I would say that after 13 years in Japan, uh, this upcoming year is probably going to be the most exciting year for Meltwater in Japan. Uh, because, because you joined. <laughs> I'd like to think that I'll have an, an impact, <laughs> and I'll certainly do my best, but it's because of the, all the work that the team has done before, and it's the fact that the market is now maturing. We've had massive strides in digital transformation over the past year because of the pandemic being an accelerator. And finally, now the market is ready for what we can do. But I like to think of Meltwater as the first sort of dipping of the toe into the digital world. As we both know, Japan is still very much in the analog world. Right. Broadcast media is still extremely powerful, more so than probably any other market. So is print media. Print media, of course, extremely powerful. And finally, after 20 years of trying, uh, this year saw the creation of the digital agency. Finally, a, One of the a, major accomplishments of former Prime Minister Suga. Yes, and it really was his flagship project, and, and kudos to him for getting it done. I'm very happy that this came about through a top-down initiative, and we're seeing the digital transformation come fairly organically. I mean, obviously, a pandemic is a bit of an artificial accelerator. True. We mentioned earlier about Prime Minister Suga initiating the digital agency. Evan, what if you were asked to head up this agency? What are a couple initiatives that you would implement for quick wins? Well, the first and foremost, obviously, has to be a move to digital signatures. The Hanko problem. Everybody carries their hanko or their chop, I think is the English term for it, or the, the company inkan. Yeah, stamp. stamp. It's actually a, a little piece of wood or ivory or something with your, your name carved into it. And you dip it in ink and you sign that. And that is yeah, registered with the city office, registered with the bank. It is your legal signature. It's a culture that comes from China. Right. Although China phased it out a long time ago, Japan has continued to use it. And it is legally binding and necessary for most business processes. Another important 
aspect of Japanese business culture to understand is the lingi culture, or the lingi show, which is basically a physical document that must be circulated amongst stakeholders and signed off by everyone in order... With the hanko, or with the chop. With that hanko, in order to process any decision. And this comes from a very strong culture of business compliance. It removes risk from any one individual when you make a business decision, whether it's a simple purchasing decision or a hiring decision or really any decision. Everybody has agreed to it, so nobody's responsible. And conversely, that means there's no weak link in the chain. Everybody has decided as a group, this process has been signed off on and put in motion, so it will move forward and the company will be more stable because of it. To put a a positive spin on it. Sure. It's a consensus document. It's a consensus-based document and way of doing business, which gives much more stakeholder both responsibility and input. And it's one issue of Japanese corporate governance that I think the rest of the world actually needs to emulate. I think moving forward, we'll probably see a shift even in the, the public markets from shareholder power to stakeholder power because it is a better form of corporate governance. So there it is. The downside of this is that it's all physical. This is one of the arguments that was used in Japan for not transferring to work from home. Everybody has to be in the office because of the ringi show, because of the hanko, people have to stamp it. It's a physical document. So that's where you're going with your first implementation as director of the new digitalization agency of Japan. Right. I would make that the uh, first and foremost initiative because those traditional bingi shows, those paper documents that needed to be physically stamped off on by every stakeholder would get to Suzuki's desk and it would sit there collecting dusk because he was working from home. So that process would not move forward until somebody called him up and said, well, we need to move this forward, so you're going to have to put on your mask and wash your hands and take the train and come in all the way into the office, which probably was the typical Tokyo commute of about 90 minutes, to go into the office to stamp that one document and go home again. And businesses realized that this was no longer a nice-to-have. Digital processes were no longer nice-to-have. They were now necessary, and they were actually slowing down the actual speed of business. So the number one thing that the the digital agency, and if I were head of the digital agency, I would put uh, put into practice right now, is a standardization of that digital signature ecosystem. The second thing I would do is actually the primary stated mandate of the digital agency, which is to standardize every other process, whether it's email services or security protocols for signing onto the internet or standardized processes for interacting with other governments around the world. Until now, there has been no standardization. Every single office within the government has figured things out for themselves in their own way with no compliance between them. And so every bureau has been completely siloed. There's a lot of siloization. And the promise of the digital agency and digital processes in general are the breaking down of those silos and the smoothing out of processes in general, which will make Japan overall much more competitive and be an economic driver. So what you're saying is just the elimination of legacy processes would be the quickest form of transformation. 
the elimination of the bad habits automatically would force transformation in a positive way. Yeah, there's um, there's a great old story about this this very concept. This story is generally known as the Tower of Babel. There you go. You started off as an English teacher, as a lot of us did, but you started your own English school and were quite successful right out of the gate. That must have been a big confidence booster for you. Well, actually, you know, I, I started the English school in the second year that I was in Japan, and I originally came with a different project in mind, uh, and that project was a failure, so it wasn't a huge confidence booster. Both my parents were, were entrepreneurs, you know, small business owners. That was very inspiring. So I, I'd been working in either fishing in the summers or these retail sales jobs like you know, Radio Shack and that sort of thing during the winters, learning the basics of sales. And uh, I wanted to go out and see the world. So after school, I, I came up with this idea to, to go to Japan, which is where we'd always sold all of our fish, the high-quality sockeye salmon and um, all of the fish that my dad had caught. I set out to go to Japan and try and create a more direct route, import route, for my father's salmon. That was one of the business ideas I had. So I worked with Jetro uh, during that first year to try and sort of do the necessary lobbying and work with the fishermen's unions and better promote Canadian uh, seafood in Japan and then import it. And I studied marketing in school, so I had some idea of how you could go about doing that. But I, I didn't have any Japanese. It was very difficult to get that project off the ground. And so I taught English uh, during that first year part-time to pay the bills. And in the second year, I took everything I'd learned uh, teaching English for the number one English school chain in Japan at the time. Was it Nova? Slightly before they went bankrupt. Hey, that's where I worked too. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the place to learn, I guess. Yeah. When I joined Nova, I was 19 years old. They had two schools, one in Umeda in Osaka and one in Shinsaibashi, and I taught at the Umeda school. So we're <laughs> alumni, my friend. The Nova alumni. Wow. Not very proud tradition, I think, but... <laughs> well, it got us where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our, our friends have worked in English teaching to, to find their way in Japan initially. So I worked at Sapporo, and uh, that was partly because you know Hokkaido and Vancouver are the two closest points between North America and Asia. So the container ships bringing the seafood over, they, they stop in Tamakamai, and then they come down to Yokohama. And so I worked at the Nova there in Sapporo, and I got the idea that actually this English teaching business was pretty good. And I thought I could improve on the Nova curriculum a little bit and maybe make it a little bit more ethical. Make it work outside of Sapporo. What does that mean, make it a little more ethical? One reason why they went bankrupt the first time and had to readjust their business model is because they would sell these books of tickets, which it was almost physically impossible to use before they would expire. You know, they were expiring before they could be used, and that was deemed unethical. There was an actual, you know, lawsuit against it. True, yeah. So I, I didn't want that model. I went with a simple, you know, flat rate subscription model, attend as much as you can. But your initial foray into English teaching school, your own, was very successful, wasn't it? Yes, because uh, we were located outside of Sapporo in a relatively small town. There wasn't a lot of competition. There was a lot of demand, and it went very, very well. One reason 
why it went so well was because I had studied a little bit of marketing and I had some idea of how you could promote a business. And it was just simple things like, you know, I knew a little bit of graphic design, so I made some flyers initially and put them in people's mailboxes. And then I thought, well, after looking at the flyer, they should have some call to action. They should have... CTA. CTA, yeah, exactly. They should have something to do. And so initially I'd put the phone number, but then I built a very simple website because I'd learned how to code HTML in, in school. Put a simple contact form on the site and some pictures so people could get an idea of what they would do there. Wow. But did you think that was going to be your long-term destiny in Japan, running a chain of English schools? Initially. Initially, I thought it would be a good business and maybe something I could do for a career. But I, I got to a point of like maximum scalability, running it by myself, and then ran into logistical issues. It's really hard to scale a brick-and-mortar business like it that. It is. You have to lease more space, you have to train teachers, and then constantly train new teachers because the turnover is very high. Most right. teachers are only here for uh, a relatively short time. And uh, it, it's quite difficult to expand to other locations. Yeah, the scalability is just not there. It is difficult. I mean, I, I really got a good education in trying to scale that. I learned a lot. I read a lot of books, you know, everything on how to templatize the business, work uh, on the business, not in the business. At that point, I realized, well, I need something that I can scale without having to take a loan for or needing any infrastructure for. And the internet seemed like you know, the scalable option. For sure. So I kind of cast around for different ideas. What could I do to build you know, a business that didn't require brick and mortar classrooms? What was more scalable? And initially it was ideas like putting the software online so I could teach lessons uh, online or sell DVDs of you know, lessons and that sort of thing. But at the same time, a lot of my students, which were uh, many corporate students, I'd go in and teach large group lessons at a... Um, a manufacturing company or some office somewhere. So did I. Yep. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them were asking, well, how did you grow your school? You know, it's like, it's quite popular. We hear about your school all over town. Or, what, what is this, uh, this website that you made for the school? Or, we heard about this thing called Twitter. What, what does that do? They started to ask more and more questions related to actual internet-based digital marketing. And so I saw a need for that. After about another year of getting more requests, doing a couple little side projects, I started what became a digital marketing agency with one of my students. So he was uh, the co-founder of the, of the marketing business. And initially, we didn't really know what we were going to do. We had a few branding ideas, and, and we had a couple of little projects here and there. And he had been a... Um, a government worker for the city, uh, as well as his father, so he had some connections to the local you know, municipality and city office and had an ear to the ground about RFPs that were coming up, requests for proposals for different ideas. And we started to put in bids for these different projects to try and help the whole area digitize. And nice. Then we got an accelerator when the 2008 G8 Summit came to our area in Hokkaido, the uh, Toya Lake region. And we created a concept website to showcase the area. Uh, and then we started working with the local municipalities to better create their websites or improve their websites or brand the experience in some way. And local companies to take their products overseas. So we went from quite basic 
web design to being probably at the time Hokkaido's premier multilingual, multicultural boutique digital marketing agency. Uh, we could build websites and run SEO campaigns and uh, do basic search engine based marketing and social media campaigns and so on. We got better and better at this and it was basically a case of I would pitch something to a customer and they'd say oh, I like that idea and then I'd go home and learn how to do it that night and we'd try and implement it the next day. Why not use whatever is relevant for the moment? I like that. Cheers, man. Thank you. You can quote me on that. <laughs> Patent it. <laughs> Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families and is more affordable than trains and hotels as it's only one price per night. Go to dreamdrive.life to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. Over the past couple of years, I've had agencies contact me. Hmm. What about social media monitoring? We can help you out with that. What people are saying on social media about your brand, about your company, about your products. Yeah. Are they most likely using Meltwater? They should be. But yes, agencies would use a tool like ours on behalf of their clients to get those insights and then advise their clients on what they should do with that. We do empower both our agency partners to be more effective at that, but we also power our customers who use the platform directly. So like any business, the actual business impact comes down to either saving money or making money. We do both. We allow our customers to save a great deal of time, which allows them to save a great deal of money and to make more money by understanding the market better. Well, you say saving time. I think that's important because there are a lot of the tools that your company offers are already out there. Google Alerts, for example. So although Google does have its alerts function, that is in functionality wise, like 1% of our what our platform could do. Yes, there are many sort of small light tools that could do some component of what the platform does. But Meltwater, as the global leader, and after going public last year, now has the scale and the, and the purchasing power to actualize a lot of those uh, tools into our core platform. So the entire architecture over the past two years has been rebuilt. It's now much more API enabled, so it integrates with other platforms, data in, data out very easily. And to become not just a source of aggregating data, so not just the uh, media monitoring or, or listening component, we are now branching out into what we call Engage, which is a part of the platform that allows for two-way conversations. So working together with influencers, for example, becoming a part of the conversation. I like that. In my business, we use a lot of influencers. How is the role of influencers changing in social media? Well, I think the primary change is there's more accountability around what an influencer is. Who is an influencer or a, a micro-influencer and what the expectations should be. It's not just that somebody talks about your product. It has to be presented in a certain way to be effective. In terms of where it's going, I think it's coming more and more in line with 
reality, the natural sort of organic amalgamation of the digital and physical worlds. I think that an influencer will become less artificial in the future and will just feel like, yeah, that resonates because that's somebody that I identify with. And so that's an interesting story. Just think of them as storytellers, essentially. Sales and marketing and business in general, it's really just about telling a story. Helping people understand what the story is and why it matters and make them feel like they're a part of it. But I want to drill down and I want to hear a story about something I saw on your website. Give it to me. A 290-year-old company that doesn't sound very Japanese. The Japanese website has this Miyabi brand or product name. I want to understand the story of this. And what is this and how does it resonate? Why is this on the Japanese website? What was the story building that went into creating that? Sure. Miyabi is a brand that we developed in the early 2000s because Japanese cuisine is very popular in, around the world and people that want to cook Japanese food want to use Japanese knives because Japanese knives are different from Western knives in terms of the handle shape and the weight and the angle of the blade and the shape of the blade, etc. On the steel, like the forging story that you yeah. were talking about earlier. Over 90% of the Zwilling branded knives that we sell in Japan are made in Japan. We have our own factory here as a German company. For us to make a Japanese branded knife is extremely natural for us because we have a Japanese factory. So we have that know-how, that technical capability. Most importantly, we have the craftsmanship ability to make a Japanese knife, which mm. these are basically handmade. Obviously, there's some, some machine usage, but it, there's over a hundred steps that go into making most of our knives, including Miyabi knife. It's mainly an export brand. Mm. In the U.S., it's probably the second most popular Japanese knife brand in the U.S. market or in the North American market because it sells mm. quite a bit in Canada as well. <laughs> so that's the basic story behind it. We identified there was an export market potential for Japanese knives and we have the knife making prowess yeah. and history and we have a Japanese factory. That's how Miyabi was born. It's a great story for myself as a potential buyer, consumer, and I'm interested in that story now, but without knowing that 90% were already made in Japan, it sort of felt like hubris, right? Probably well-founded uh, hubris, but without that key data point, it didn't seem like a natural story to buy, you know, a German, even with a 290-year-old history, a German brand in Japan. But when you tell that story of knowing that it's produced in Japan with Japanese craftsmanship and all of the weight and structure and, and trustworthiness and great support system and everything that comes with your infrastructure, that sounds like a great sort of marriage. Oh, it definitely is. And that's, that's our key message is that we are a combination of German technology or German DNA and Japanese craftsmanship. So that's the story 
that as a potential follower of your social media or reader of your company's content, I need to know. If you tell me that story, I will buy. No way if I can convince my wife. So the story has to be in Japanese too. <laughs> it is. It Luckily is. It's, 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 yes, and this, we were just looking at the Japanese website when we started talking about this. This is how you sell your wife on it. Go to one of our stores. We have 40 stores throughout Japan. Of course, you can buy online, but there's nothing better than touching and feeling and trying out yourself. And by the way, at all of our stores, you can do demo cutting. Ooh. with all of our knives so you can actually try before you buy you can feel the balance you can feel the weight you can feel the quality you know I used to be able to fill it 60 salmon an hour so I, I have some strong opinions when it comes to knives there you go you mentioned that you have to sell this to your wife so this is the angle I'm taking right now my friend yep is it you tell her that your grandchildren will receive it for free Oh, that's a great story. If you go back and you think about a lot of the best memories of your childhood, most likely a lot of them revolve around holidays, eating, and family. And a lot of them revolve around smells out of the kitchen. Certainly, yeah. From yeah. cooking to presentation. You don't have grandchildren yet. No. Nope. Obviously. <laughs> Not yet, no. But that's the point. Your grandchildren are going to experience probably two generations of mother, grandmother, cooking, smells, eating, wonderful memories, and then they receive the knife that their mother got from their mother, and it's the same knife. It's still cutting great. It's still beautiful. It's a, it's a family kitchen heirloom. Those stories really do resonate, just like the story uh, I was telling earlier about the car that my dad bought my mom for her 19th birthday, which yeah. we just finished restoring so sure. that I can now drive it. Yeah. Don't count the cost, count the memories. Yep, there you go. To bring it back to my, my sort of narrative, my sales world, as it were, so if you want to both understand the audience that you should be talking to, the story that you should be telling, and then the effectiveness of that story. You do want to use something like Meltwater, a platform like this, to make sure you're having that conversation effectively. Evan, what is your favorite Japanese word which does not have a direct English translation? It's a great question, and it's something that I thought about a little bit. So just use a favorite word, and I'll say kansha. Kansha? Kansha. How do you translate kancha into English? Gratitude. Appreciation? It's that and it's a little bit more as well. It's a feeling of understanding, sort of fitting in, harmony as well. Giving thanks? It is literally giving thanks, yeah. The translation of thanksgiving in Japanese is kansha-sai. Ah, yes, yeah. Uh, so it, it actually, I think, is a broader word than the English gratitude or appreciation. It, it encompasses more. Yeah. It's my wife's favorite word. It's something that she repeats almost like a mantra constantly. Like, when it's a beautiful day, oh, we should appreciate it. Everything that we have in life, we should stop and appreciate. 
And I, I really like that sort of stopping and uh, savoring moments and taking a moment to appreciate things. I like that word as well. It's a nice way to live your life. Evan, you've come a long way from working on fishing boats to where you are today. What makes living and working in Japan special for you? Well, for one thing, I get to uh, spend the weekend going out on little boats fishing and <laughs> doing it for fun. Full circle. <laughs> you can take the boy out of the boat, but you can't take the, you can't take the boat out of the boy. Yes, something like that. You know, and again, to bring that back to what I was saying earlier, I'm, I'm so consistent, I'm so appreciative or grateful for the experience that we have here because we work and live in a very harmonious society. I think it's probably one of the greatest qualities of, of life on, on the planet. And everybody gets along very well, but everybody works together as well. That's what I've found so interesting about having a career in Japan. I've spent almost 20 years now feeling like I can be useful every minute that I've been here. I don't always fit in with society. And most of the time I'm bringing an outside view there's always something where I feel like I can be useful. So whether it was finding those early business opportunities and uh, teaching uh, English and trying to be a bridge between Japan and the rest of the world or trying to enhance the early digital transformation to bringing best-in-class software to the market so that I could help Japanese corporations to try and connect more globally. I've always felt that there was something where I could be useful and something where the society was both benefiting me and I was able to give back in some way. Has that been your experience too? The most successful foreigners that I know in Japan have a very similar outlook to you. It's nice to be a bridge between two different cultures. Some people say a shock absorber, but you know we're bilingual, but we're also bicultural. Absolutely. That's the first time I've heard shock absorber. I've always said I'm a bridge and a buffer between head office and, and what's going on in Japan. We're basically trying to take everything that we feel we can bring and add to Japanese society while at the same time trying to understand it to our yeah. best ability. And that creates both a harmony and that certain times maybe a certain tension, but it's net, net beneficial, I, I would like to think. So that's why parts. I use the term shock absorber. North American culture, European culture, for the most part, is very direct, whereas in Japan it's very indirect. And I've seen so many instances where European or American or Canadian maybe head offices is very straight, very blunt, hmm. where the Japan answer is a little vague, it's a bit wish-washy, where Europe or the US gets very frustrated with the mm. Japanese message, and the Japanese get very frustrated or intimidated by the aggressiveness of head offs. So when you're the shock absorber, you take both of those messages, I'm using air finger quotes here, yes. you kind of translate them into what the most understandable and applicable answer is for both sides. So that's why I used shock absorber. The point is, the most successful foreigners in Japan that I've met are not just Bilingual, they're bicultural, and they're people that really do try to be a bridge. And that's what it sounds like you're saying too. Absolutely, Evan. Anything else I missed? No, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. It's been fun. 
Uh, I appreciate the recommendation of the APA beer. Andrew Pale Ale, if anybody comes here, this, that's what they should ask for. But this has been fun. Thanks for the chance to, to talk for a while. Well, my pleasure. Definitely are an evangelist for <laughs> digitalization. Uh, you're a real expert. Appreciate you imparting a lot of your wisdom on today's conversation. So, Evan, thank you very much. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with somebody who's an equal expert in their field, and I feel like I learned a little bit more about the world of knives and quality steel and the investment I should be making for my grandchildren. So thank you. And that was Evan Burkowski. See, I told you it would be fun and relevant. Let's see if his initiatives for the digital agency will come to fruition in real life. His company, Meltwater, is really cutting edge when it comes to media monitoring and social listening. Find out more at meltwater.com. More episodes just like today's are available at nowandzen.jp. There you can send me a mail, leave a message, or even write a review. Sorry, I don't mean to give you a homework assignment, but it is appreciated and it gives me much needed validation. On that note, until next episode, thanks for listening and catch you next time. Thank you.